I have a saying uh, that goes a little something like this. Commitments are more important than opportunities. Commitments are more important than opportunities. All right, that's, that's mostly true. I'll get to the caveats here in just a second. But I developed that, uh, that one-liner uh, because I oversaw uh, a lot of younger, yes, I'm young, but I oversaw a lot of college interns uh, through about half of my experience in student ministry. And whenever you're overseeing college interns to get work done, even younger student ministry level employees to get work done, this is kind of a uh, crisis that comes up which created the need for this one-liner because whenever you're younger, what's more exciting, commitments or opportunities? Well, the opportunities are way more exciting because a lot of times those spur-of-the-moment opportunities are, are the things that are more spontaneous and just by nature are more exhilarating and worthwhile in the moment. And what happens whenever we grow older and, and mature whatever, uh, we learned that there's a lot to be said for. Matter of fact, we can only survive just based on our schedule if we hold to our commitments. And I'll let you know when something opens up, and I'd be happy to do that. Let me know when that happens next time because I have previous commitments, right? And so this was a, this was a pattern, students or interns uh, bailing on commitments to pursue those more exciting things, and so that became a one-liner for me. Um, that's, that's true unless someone of such authority uh, calls you and then presents an opportunity to you, right? Like depending on who it is, you can call that person you're about to have lunch with and say, hey, I'd love to, you know, can we rain check this? Commitments, however, for the most part, are more important than opportunities. Here's why I say that. As we are about to jump into Tuesday of Jesus's life, uh, he has commitments, there's things he still wants to do. We'll get to the, the, the how he's able to control his life that well, and we'll get to what exactly he wanted to do here in just a second. But he had commitments. Tuesday was booked for Jesus. Uh, but there was an opportunity that arose, something that he would later take advantage of, and really, in a really odd sense, he was looking forward to, and that was his arrest and his murder and his impending and subsequent resurrection and glorification in heaven, right? And so some Jewish leaders, as we open up, uh, finish chapter 11 and, and look at all of, Pastor Dave, uh, that's how I'm going to do it, we'll just have to read it all, all of chapter 12, because that's Tuesday, he spends the whole entire day teaching in the temple. What we see is a man who has Tuesday booked, and these guys come and offer him an opportunity for something he has booked for Friday, even the very next couple of days. And he's going, I'm booked, but, but thank you for the opportunity to arrest me and to murder me and to set me free in the hearts of my people. Uh, but can that wait a couple of days? And his authority is going to be the banner over this text this morning. His authority to look at such an opportunity, people of such power in their own right, and say, no, 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 I can't right now. I'm, I'm booked. So what exactly was he booked doing? It's actually pretty important. Let's take a a look at, uh, and if you have your, your Bible, uh, you can open up to, to Mark at the end of chapter 11, but just real quick, so we're all on the same page. This is Tuesday of Jesus' final week on earth, and they wake up after he cleanses and clears uh, the temple. He curses a fig tree, in a sense, judges Jewish worship, curses the temple, uh, foreshadowing you know, Rome's complete destruction of 
the temple and how that is not how we are going to worship God anymore. He's about to switch modes and go into the heart of his people. Remember that? Yes, even if you weren't here, you listen to the podcast, I trust. Uh, and so they... Uh, they walk back toward Jerusalem, and the people, the, the Jews that are kind of milling around the city uh, in preparation for the Passover festivities, uh, they're excited. They're hopeful to see Jesus again. Uh, so in that sense, they enter to kind of a, an environment of excitement. But in terms of the Jewish leaders, they were, they were waiting for him. And they, Jesus and his band of, of apostles and, and disciples, they enter the temple uh, in kind of an air when it comes to the Jewish leaders of anticipation for his arrest. They expect him back, and they intend to arrest him. I can almost hear Simon Peter saying, Jesus, are, are you trying to get yourself killed? To which he says, yes, but not before. I spend the entire day teaching in the temple, and as Luke puts it, I love this, preaching the gospel in the temple on Tuesday. And before we open up, I want us to have in our minds kind of the scene that would, that would take place in the temple. So just if you would, this is going to kind of be a bookend. And we're going to sing about the Lamb of God like more than, than what we just did in a minute. I want you to think about the offerings that were about to be made. The sacrifice is about to be uh, slaughtered for worship to God, specifically the lambs. And imagine if you're Jesus, not just the day before, but the next couple days in the temple, you're going to see all of the sacrifices, in particular the lambs, being led or carried and I can imagine the constant reminder that was for him being the Lamb of God for us of what he would endure. So as we imagine him teaching, picture the lambs. He knows he's about to lay his life down, but he doesn't take the opportunity. He's booked for today. He's got stuff to do. But Jesus has been a threat to the Jewish leaders. They intend to arrest him. All they know it'll take is all the Jews seeing their Messiah in fisticuffs, so to speak, and all of a sudden they're going to lose faith in this guy as the Messiah if they can just get him arrested and convince Rome that he's a, he's a spiritual, religious, theological threat that's about to cause an uproar and we need to deal with him. Uh, but a simple arrest won't work. They have to be creative. Let's look at John 11 on the screen real quick and then we'll go into Mark chapter 11. Uh, this arrest has been the plan for over a week now. Verse 45 of John 11, many of the Jews therefore who come who came with Mary and had seen what he did with Lazarus, raving, raising a guy from the dead that causes a stir, believe in him, verse 46. But some of them went to the Pharisees, tattletales, and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place, our positions, power, and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. Listen to me, he says, verse 50. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. And this is Mark here, or John. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied unknowingly that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. This is the opportunity. You're doing me a favor. Thanks so much, but I'm booked today. I've got something. I'll see you in a couple of days. Verse 53. So that from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Skip to verse 56. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? 
Verse 57, now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should tell them, let them know so that they might arrest him. So this is the plan. And all throughout chapter 12 of Mark, we look at how they plan and intend to do that. Their plan, the Jewish leaders, which by the way vary in some pretty major ways based on doctrine and and just personality and how they interpreted scripture. You have the, the, the liberals and you have the conservatives. You have the legal. You have the spiritual. And they're all convening together because they have one common enemy. That's Jesus. So they all get together and they hatch a what I would call a two-part plan to arrest Jesus. They couldn't just walk up and arrest him because he was too popular for that. The people would riot. So they have a two-part plan, and and I think as we look through Mark 11 and then through 12, we see two things. The first thing, plan A, is to prove blasphemy. Prove blasphemy. This is Jesus' first opportunity to go to the cross, but he's going to dodge it. Mark 11, he just cleansed the temple, woke up the next morning, walking back to the temple. They see the cursed fig tree, and they came again to Jerusalem. And as he walked in the temple, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders, this would represent the Sanhedrin, came to him. And they said to him, by what authority? Everybody say authority. That's going to come back the entire day. By what authority do you do these things, or who gave you this authority to do them? I love this. He would have been great at Jeopardy. Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John, the Baptist, from heaven or from man? Answer me. They called a huddle, and they discussed it with one another, saying, if we say from heaven, uh, then he will say, "Well, well, why then did you not believe him? Because he pointed pretty clearly to me. Verse 32, but shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, and this must have been beautiful. He probably would have gone to the cross after this if he could. This must have been a ringing in his ears. And I take that back. I'm not as resentful as Jesus. He's more gracious. Here's what they say. We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. But... Though Jesus doesn't answer his critics directly, he he goes about it a different way, and we continue reading. He began to speak to them in parables, and we're we're going to see how he actually answers their question. Let's read the parable together. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. Just so we're on the same page, this is God. The vineyard is the work of God. Another country is heaven. The servants are going to be the the prophets. When the season came, he, the owner, sent a servant to, to the tenant to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty handed. Again, he sent to them another servant and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another and they killed him. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, Jesus tells a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, they will respect my son. By those, but those tenants said to one another, this is the heir, this is our chance. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. 
What will the owner of the vineyard do, Jesus asks. He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. These would be Gentile, unclean, Galilean Jews, untrained. Have you not read this scripture? Jesus says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. And this is Mark again saying, telling the story. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived he had told a parable against them. So they went away, left him and went away. So what did Jesus say? He answered their question by what or who do you do these things and and what authority do you do those things with and and who gave you that authority? And they they were baiting him to say that I am the Son of God and my authority comes from God. But in a roundabout way, he was actually very clear and they knew it. They just didn't get it articulated the way they wanted and needed to accuse him. But he basically said, I am the son of God and you will murder me in the presence of well-meaning Jews of which they were afraid. This wasn't a surprise to them. In in Matthew 10, they've seen his authority to heal the sick. In Mark 1, they've seen his authority to teach without citation. He never quoted imminent popular, famous, quotable rabbis. He was not uh, officially ordained by the Sanhedrin, which was a thing. Show me your papers. So they, they saw him teach, and he would say things like, I say to you, and you've heard it said, and, but I tell you this. And they're going, who does this guy think he is? So they, they knew he had authority to, to teach without citation, to cast out unclean spirits like Luke 4, and they said they had never seen power like this. Even more, he had authority to forgive sin, which was way more than healing somebody. This was blasphemous and offensive. Only God forgives sin, right? In John 1, we see his authority to make children of God, to declare that these are who the children of God are, and these are who the children of God are are not. He has some pretty amazing, offensive, seemingly blasphemous authority. He has authority to declare new commands in John 13 without consulting the Sanhedrin. He has authority to execute judgment in John 5. Judgment on the worship of Judaism at the time and judgment even at the end of things. And to top it off, John 17 shows us Jesus has the authority to give eternal life. Who does this guy think he is? And they knew who he thought he was. They just needed him to say it in the presence of the Sanhedrin representatives, the the high priest. Caiaphas might have even been there. And if the priests and the scribes and all the right people heard him say that I get my authority from God, then their case as a blasphemer was sealed. But here's the problem, and I love this because it's a theme that runs throughout this entire day. These guys were so terrified of the people. The people's honor and the people's money meant everything to them. Uh, We see in chapter 12, verse 12, that they perceived he was telling a parable against them, so they did not act or retaliate. And then even earlier, we read in verse 32 that they had their chance to say that John's baptism was from man, which means you are not who he claims you were, and thereby you're not God. And having said that incorrect statement, he would have honored his word and answered them. And he would have said, my authority comes from God. They would have had their arrest. They were so close. But the problem with plan A was that they were afraid of man's rejection. 
So we get the idea these guys huddle up again, and we're going to continue in uh, verse 13, and this is where they start their entrapment plan. Plan B, all right, that didn't work. He's too clever. He's been on Jeopardy one too many times, and he's doing this really rabbinical, uh, I'm going to ask you a question, I'm going to answer your question with a question, I'm going to totally confuse you unless, of course, the Holy Spirit's working in you and God is calling you to himself, in which case your eyes are opened and you understand the truth of these parables and how they lead to life. But for the rest of you, you're going to get a sense that I answered your question, but you're not going to understand the true meaning and you're not going to be hit with any sort of encouragement or conviction that would lead to repentance in life. So plan B begins with a political trap. Um, Mark 12, it begins, interestingly enough, with the Pharisees and the Herodians getting together. These are guys who wanted nothing to do with each other uh, 364 days of the year. Uh, the Herodians were, uh, they were sympathetic to Rome. These were Jewish guys who, in all other cases, kind of turned their back on the, the religion of Rome and, and Judaism and uh, the God of the Bible. And they were very sympathetic to Hellenism and Greek life. And, and these were Jews who supported Roman rule, right? And then you have the Pharisees who, yes, while liberal, very religious and, and all of those things, but they know that if they worked together and sacrifice all of their belief and all of their doctrine, by the way, they could accomplish something. In a sense, they're selling their soul to get something that's very earthly. And they go to him with this question in all hypocrisy, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Again, the Herodians would, would be important to have in the audience so that they could take their claim to Rome. But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought him one. And he said to them, whose likeness is an inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, render, which means to pay a debt, by the way. Give him what he owes. Render what to, C to Caesar, the things that are Caesar's, and to God, the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Why did they, why did they marvel at him for that? Well, the coins in circulation at that time under Tiberius Caesar would have likely have engraved over his mug on the back of that coin, it would say, Tiberius Caesar. And then underneath it would say, Son of Divine Augustus. Here's what Jesus is saying. One of us is the Son of God. Just one of us, though. Now, it's either our current Caesar, small g, God. He's a God in which case that, that lends to our understanding of why Jews didn't use these coins. They had to go find these. Probably the Herodian had a coin. Maybe even the Pharisees, because of their love of money, maybe they dug one out, and maybe they were embarrassed to pull out a denarius. Because Jews considered that engraved image. They considered it an idol. Because this was, in fact, you know, a person claiming to be God. And so they would use smaller coins, and so they had to find this denarius, and it would have this, this guy claiming to be God on it. And what they expected was for Jesus to say, this is an idol. This is a graven image. Pay no homage or honor, certainly even worship, to anyone that would threaten the rule of the true God. There's no other God but God. And what he says is, one of us is a son of God. One of us is lying about it. And beautifully, perfectly, in all wisdom, he says, render 
to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. Here's what he's saying. This earthly government system, they need your taxes, albeit extortion level taxes, yes. But he wasn't there to fight a political social battle. He had much bigger fish to fry, right? And so he says, pay the government, let the government, the earthly government do its thing, therefore shaming and thereby shaming the Roman government and everything they assumed he would say. Separated from that, give God what is his. It's subtle, but quite powerful. So that trap didn't work. So they they try to trap him politically, get a Herodian in the crowd, make him claim that there is a true God and and thereby threatening the, the rule of Caesar, claiming that he's going to be an insurrectionist, that he's going to cause a rebellion, they didn't care about his theology, the religious stuff he claims to be. Who cares? Uh, but if, if he leads a rebellion, this could really hurt their little province. And they, this could hurt uh, and this could insult Roman rule of this area. It didn't work, though. So they set a theological trap, which is funny to me. So they, they huddle back up, we can imagine. And then in this round, uh, they send out the Sadducees. You go get them. Good luck. Slap them on the you know little football, good game, kind of go get them thing, right? That offends you. You never played sports. Maybe with just, you know, we, we do that. I don't know why. Uh, anyways, so it, it's like a go get them, your turn, right? So everybody else comes back all shameful, tail between their legs. Now it's the Sadducees' turn to see if they can trip him up and entrap him in his words. And Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection, by the way. They believe in nothing spiritual. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, now hang with me, this is supposed to be confusing. As a matter of fact, the more confused you are, the more it's going to make a point at the end. So just hang with me. You're like, what is he talking about? Well, you've never read this before, obviously, because uh, it gets a little confusing. Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There are seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. The second took her and died, left no offspring. And the third, likewise, and the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. It's about time. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven, all seven, had her as a wife. Trying to trip him up, find a theological, biblical loophole. Verse 24, Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they'll neither marry nor be given in marriage. They'll be spiritual beings like in heaven, angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read the book of Moses? In the passage about the bush where God spoke to him saying, I am currently presently the God of Abraham and currently the God of Isaac and and am now currently the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. If Scripture doesn't make sense, it's because we're reading it wrong. If Scripture doesn't make sense, it's because the Holy Spirit has yet to reveal that truth to us. If Scripture doesn't click and line up with this other passage, it's because there's, a, there's a, a common thread that we just haven't discovered yet, and through faithful study, 
God won't leave it a mystery. We, we can understand these things. It doesn't mean that the writer got it wrong or Jesus doesn't understand it all. He doesn't just know the word. John 1, 1 tells us he is the word. Don't pick theological arguments with him. Humbly bow back to your knees and say, Lord, help me understand what this means because I'm not seeing it. But instead, they take a position of pride. They could have just asked. The problem with all these entrapments is he keeps escaping. You get the sense he's moisturizing his nails and polishing them on his robe while doing that, maybe yawning. Again, that's me. But this is no sweat off of Jesus' back, and in a sense his heart is maybe even breaking because they, their attempts are so evil and so self-centered. So plan A was to call him and get him to attest the fact that he's a blasphemer. Well, he answered his questions correctly and tricked them. Plan B was to entrap him in his words politically and theologically, and he kept escaping those things. And to add insult to injury, he goes on and exposes false teaching, exposes false teachers from verse 28 down to verse 37. He describes the great commandment and he, he unpacks and reminds them of the simplicity of the law and, and downplays the current complex sacrificial system. He's going, guys, this is what's really important. Sacrifices are only as important as, as our heart is pure toward God, right? That was a false teaching that they had believed and misunderstood and applied. And Jesus is correcting that. He's exposing false teaching when it comes to, to the Son of God, the Messiah. He talks about how David knows that the Messiah is going to come through the line of David, right? And they said yes. But, but it, 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 this guy, when he comes from the line of David, which Jesus did, it doesn't necessarily mean that he's going to be God or the Messiah, the prophet. He's going to be a prophet and, and uh, an anointed one. And so Jesus goes back to that passage and, and explains and shows them that even David, from whose line the Messiah would come, even David called him Lord. What does that mean? Well, that means that even David knew that he was going to be deity and God. And they go, oh, oh, wow. Scripture tells us that they understood him well and that they were amazed at his teaching. He goes on and explains and exposes false teachers. They wear the long robes and the long tassels. And, and the longer the tassel, the more holy you are. You can imagine how that just grew and grew uh, over time, and, and they, they take the best seats in the place. And what he's doing is he's unpacking and exposing their falsehood and how these guys, they just want your money. Unfortunately, there are still teachers like that today. It takes a different shape, but in, in the one most sacred place on earth, Christ is exposing false teachers and showing that they're just after your, your honor, your respect, and your, your money. Here's the point for Tuesday. The point for Tuesday is that he didn't barely slip through their fingers. He didn't barely escape their debates. Jesus controls his very death until the very day he's supposed to die. This is the point for us as we study Tuesday. What's the point? Cool stories, great parables. What's the, what's the point? The point is the authority of Christ, the power of Christ as seen on Tuesday, I think is only matched by the power of Christ on Friday. 
and then the power of Christ on Sunday. I think it's, I think it's like top three, like his authority is, is shining most brightly on Tuesday because he's given an opportunity to do something that he plans on doing, but he's booked. He's got stuff to do, entrapments to escape, things to explain to his disciples about faith and his second coming, and he's got some, some false teachers to expose. He's booked. It's like eight to noon is like explain prayer, right? Like noon to, to three is escape all their traps. And like three to, to five was uh, expose all their false teachings and false teachers. I'll, well, we'll talk in a couple of days, but, but I do want to do that. We know that three years ago, the plan was to kill him. He's in his hometown preaching and they plan to throw him off a cliff. What is that all about? That's why I don't preach in Oklahoma City. Three months earlier, during Hanukkah, he claims that I and the Father are one. And that we're told in John 10, the Jews picked up stones to kill him. Verse 39 says, and again they sought to arrest him, but he escaped their hands. And then now today, Tuesday, this like unrelenting assault on his authority. Just say that you're from God so we can get this over with. But this is impressive to me. As I, as I read this, I'm going, how am I going to take care of Tuesday and talk about Tuesday? Where's the one sermon? Where's the one passage that's somewhat disconnected from the other verses in this chapter that I can just camp out on, preach a simple spring break Sunday message, and go home? Turns out it's all connected. And it's all about his, the control of his very death. So we talked about three years ago, they tried to kill him. Three months ago, they tried to kill him. And now on the third day of his last week, they're trying to kill him. He controls his death down to the year, the month. And watch this, how he controls his death down to the day. Exodus 12 becomes an important support text right here because it explains the four-day inspection period of a Passover lamb. How is that important? Well, they would take the lamb home instead of making you know, a, a rash purchase or selection from the, from the group of lambs or whatever you do. I don't know what you, what you do there. I've, I've never done that. But you, you pick one that you think is most beautiful. And just to make sure that it's the best one, that it doesn't have like a, a gross birthmark under its right arm or, or make sure it's, it's not, you know, something stuck in the hair and you see something on the skin. For four days, they take it home and inspect it to make sure that it's going to properly represent all the lambs they could possibly offer to God because it has to be the best. It just so happens that the day that Passover lambs are brought home to be inspected is the day that Jesus rode in on the colt. And he comes back again and he cleanses and cleans the temple. He's back today and he'll be around in the same area one more day and then he'll die. And so this is Jesus sovereignly controlling every moment of his life. Proving his purity as a perfect, spotless Passover lamb for God's people and for the world. That's pretty impressive to me. They tried to kill him three years ago, nothing. Three months ago, nothing. Third day of the week, guys, I'm booked, I'm telling you. I've even got stuff tomorrow. That's impressive to me. He knows what he's doing. Jesus is not a victim. 
He stokes the fire that would burn him to death. He sharpens the blade that would pierce his heart. He picks the fight and then crosses his arms behind his back. Jesus effectively cuts the lumber for the very cross on which he'd hang. He knows what he's doing. But not just yet. There's, a, there's two words in the New Testament that speak to the power of Jesus. One is dunamis and one is excusia. What that is important, uh, or why that's important, is because the word uh, excusia is translated power, but it means more than just the ability. It means the office to do it. It, not just means, it, don't, it doesn't just mean power. It means the privilege. He didn't just have the ability. He had the position of this as a son of God. He didn't just have the power. He had the privilege. He had perfect authority. John 10, 17 tells us that for this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. And this is the point. This is John 10, 18 becomes our verse this morning after having jumped off of Mark 12. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord, Jesus says. I have authority. Here's the bookend, right? I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. Where do I get it from? This charge I have received from my Father. So what do we do with this? We've read. Maybe we've been you know, encouraged or, 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 or challenged a little bit th- this morning by, by some things that are kind of naturally rising to the top of the text. After we ask what this text means, we then get to ask, what does it mean for me, not to me, but now that we know what it means, we get to say, now what does it mean for me? Um, well, Hebrews 13.8 tells us that Christ uh, never diminishes in power or authority. Uh, and then Ephesians 1, Ephesians 1, 19 through 23 goes a long way in showing us that Christ is actually experiencing full authority and power right now. Ephesians 1.19 says, what, uh, Paul's praying that they would understand, dot, 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 what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the work of his great might? And he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also the age to come. He put all things under his feet and gave him as the head of all things to the church, which is the body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Christ authoritatively in all power and with all sovereignty, uh, he exercised his authority by handing his life over. But, but never earlier than he had planned to. And I think his authority intersects our life in, in two ways. One is that we accept his authority for us. And, and two is that uh, as we walk away, maybe I would, I would encourage you to prayerfully consider what it looks like to submit to his authority over us. We see clearly, especially in the next couple of days, uh, that Jesus is leveraging his power for us. That he will end up giving his life over for us in order to be the, the payment For our sin, words like substitutionary atonement, words like propitiation for sin. There's an imputation of righteousness. What does this mean? It means that that we are now the righteousness of God in Christ that we trade. In the gospel, Jesus dying the perfect death after living the perfect life is called the gospel. It means that you can now be right with God because your death for your sin just equals hell for eternity. 
but Christ's death for your sin and him by nature of being God is able to raise back again and be seated at the right hand of God while you, having received his righteousness, experience life in heaven with God. It's, it's a reminder for us that while his authority wasn't all that impressive on Tuesday, on the outside he would soon use all of that authority for our sake by laying his life down. And then what does it look like for us to submit to his authority over us? I think Jesus threatens the livelihood of every sinner the way that he threatens the livelihood of all the religious leaders that would challenge him. And to come to Christ, to to submit to his authority over us, means that he is not just Savior, but he is Lord. Those can't come apart, but there is a difference. It's possible to, to consider to accept his authority for us. He died for my sin, I accept what Christ has done for me on the cross. He pays for my sin, and then to walk in the door of salvation, and then to say no to the leadership of Jesus Christ. It doesn't, it doesn't work like that. That his, his authority is kind of a two-sided coin. They're inseparably together. He is both uh, Lord and Savior, Savior and now boss and Lord, or, or he's nothing. That he has authority over our lives individually, not just mankind, but as our Savior, he has authority over our life. Um, this week as I'm preparing for this, and even now as I pray, I, I think the, the most uh, poignant part of this whole entire study, this whole entire uh, chapter and eight verses is the sovereign control of Jesus. And how he perfectly exercised his authority selflessly. And then God, in return, elevates and honors him to position of Savior. So he lives a life and dies and becomes our Lord. He lives a life and dies and becomes our Savior. The, the, the prayer I have as I consider his authority is that him laying down his authority in his life for me, it, it, it lends me to meet him as Savior. And then from that point on, I live my life submitting to his authority over me as Lord. Tuesday's a powerful day and it has a lot of implications uh, for our life. Let's pray.